Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson, and we have a guest today. I'm going to pass it over to Nick to introduce this guest um, for this podcast, and then we'll get right into it. Yeah, we have Mike Woodruff with us. Mike is the senior pastor of Christ Church Lake Forest in the northern Chicago suburbs. He was the the founder and wrangler of the Ivy Jungle, which was a large network uh, for people who did college ministry, like university crew kinds of staff workers. So he probably has some opinions on college ministry, stuff you've brought up in the past. Um, he led something um, called Scholars International, and um, it, uh, it helps fund PhD-level education for scholars from the emerging world. So if like a, there's a, a pastor in, who becomes like a seminary professor in India but doesn't have a PhD, but we think it's beneficial to fund that person to go to like an Asbury Seminary or Trinity to get a PhD and then go back. Um, Scholars International funds that kind of person. Mm-hmm. And um, the estimates that were being done when I was at Christchurch was that su- such a person will affect the lives of up to a million people mm-hmm. if you can fund that scholar. So that's a really interesting thing that he's done. Um, he went to Trinity uh, International University or TEDS where I went to seminary as well. Um, so he's got broad pastoral experience. Michael's served as a like a business consultant for five or six years. Mm-hmm. And so he's got some back. So he's got a lot of stuff to say about leadership, the local church um, prevailing in a difficult political, economic, and secular environment, those sorts of things. So he was at our church. We wanted to get him on the podcast. Yeah. There's a connection between Mike and Manohar, correct? In some capacity? Or- yeah, in the, yeah. in that Manohar was one of the scholars. Manohar James is one of the scholars that Scholars International funded. Mm-hmm. So there, one of the reasons why... Um, there, there was a while where the, the church house in Florida funded some of Manohar's education, but we just kind of hit a brick wall. We just didn't have that kind of money. And by that point, Manohar had passed some of his comps, had proven he's one of the top Greek students at Asbury, had gotten through a year of classwork, and then Scholars International stepped in and paid for his last two years, and then some, a little bit, I think. And I think I think it's been a great investment of theirs. So, um, yeah, so Manohar is one of their scholars. And yeah. like made that possible. I was I was at a brick wall. If if a scholars hadn't stepped in, I don't know what we would have done to get Manohar through. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about thousands of pastors that um, Manohar. that Manohar is ministering to through Redeem India. Yeah. So I guess we can jump right into it. Uh, this morning, Mike preached at High Point Church on, uh, I mean, service and the purpose of the church and equipping people to go out and um, serve the community. Uh, and I think the first thing, I guess the first question I had, I guess coming from a younger person's perspective, um, is uh, I guess my question is about the relationship between service and evangelism and how those two things interact. Cause while you were talking, um, at church about going out and, you know, there's, there's a lot of these different ministries at your own church where there's, they do like barbecues for different communities and all this different stuff, which is really great. I was wondering, I guess throughout my life and I'm only 23, I heard a lot in the church about, um, about doing evangelism, not necessarily through preaching it, the gospel, but through just doing nice, good things for other people. And I don't, I don't personally buy that. I don't think that that's evangelism at all. And so I guess, um, and you didn't really, you didn't talk about this much, but I'm, I'm interested to hear your perspective on the relationship between service and evangelism and how, it, do you think that these two things go hand in hand or are they two completely separate things? How does that work? Okay. Well, good to be with you guys. Yeah. And um, I'm thrilled to hear uh, scholar leaders that that this investment in this guy who I I uh, I've been on the board for 30 years and I was president for 13 and uh, the last uh, dozen years Larry Smith has been the president it's it's gone and it's, it's just really gone in such great ways I'm it's one of the greatest things I've had a privilege to be a part of so fun to hear about that so Andy. 
Uh, what's the relationship between evangelism and and sort of social uh, service, social justice action, whatever? So I'm with you. Uh, I mean, there's this quote that supposedly gets attributed to um, St. Francis of Assisi. We don't actually think that he yeah. said it, but it's, you know, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Uh, so we don't think Assisi said it and probably don't think he would have agreed with it. And it's certainly not what, what I think is out there. I think, and John Stott writes about this in his book, The Mission of the Church. Tim Keller talks about this um, at some length as well. At, at Christ Church, we have said um, for the first 15 years I was senior pastor, maybe longer, our mission was to proclaim the good news and engage in good works. And I said that that and was very important because we we felt like we are called to talk about Christ, to tell people about an empty tomb, to tell people about Jesus, to tell to to share the good news that God has reached down. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and that we have to have a verbal proclamation. There has to be an articulation of the gospel. However, uh, we also said that. People are made in the image of God, and we need to love and care for people, and we need to feed the the, the starving, and we need to care for the the poor. And Jesus Jesus seems to move in that direction. He is particularly uh, concerned about the plight of those who are the least and the lost, and he moves to them. So, uh, is there a relationship there between um, how? You see these people come to faith. You, they come to faith by doing uh, all these good works. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think uh, Jesus says as much, uh, you know, uh, glorify God so that um, or serve so that people will see your good works and glorify your father who's in heaven. And it seems to be that those who are looking on are not necessarily people in the church. And uh, I, I think you've had experiences. I've had experiences that um, you get people's attention when you feed them or when you provide hospital care or when you're providing education. Now the, and just to be clear and I'll, I'll shut up here. Um, we think that even if they're not coming to faith, that there is value in taking care of people made in God's image. And so that was part of what Stott said as part of what uh, Keller said. We say that in the order we say it, proclaim the good news and engage in good works because there's a lot of other people that are engaging in good works. So we put the proclamation of the gospel first, uh, not because it's spiritual and the other thing is physical, but because it's eternal and the other thing is not. And because if you want to see more people get involved in caring for the poor, seeing them come to faith in Christ is one of the best ways to do it. So we do have that order, but um, I guess what I'd want you to hear is that... um, we think we are called as Christians to both of those things. They're interrelated, but uh, we lead with proclaim the good news and engage in good works. I think one of the verses here for people is in Galatians 2.10, where Paul says he interacted in Jerusalem with people about what the gospel was. They agreed that he would go to the Gentiles, they would go to the Jews. And then he says, they asked that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So for both James and the Jerusalem Christians and for Paul— even though they're both proclaiming the gospel and the church is growing, it's just assumed right. that you're helping the poor. Yeah, yeah. This as is a, part of, as a part of your ministry. Yeah. It's not what they even had their meeting about. It was just like, 
okay, this is what the gospel is. This is <laughs> right. all of the stuff that we're doing. Oh, by the way, Keep we doing all take this. care of the poor. Yeah. yeah. And then I think um, one of the books, you, you mentioned a book by Stott. There's a, a book called What is the Mission of the Church by Kevin DeYoung and I think maybe Greg Gilbert. And that covers this too. Like what's the relationship between acts of what we might call social justice and acts of proclamation? Yeah. One definition I got when I was in seminary from John Nyquist, who was an evangelist professor. He said, he said, being good to people, being nice to people, even having religious discussions becomes evangelism when t- at least th- these two things happen. One, the evangel is, is offered. That people hear what the gospel is as Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, right? The, the message of how one can be saved. And then secondly, there is an invitation or a clear statement that one needs to make a decision about this. Right. right. And if those two things are not present, what you did might be a very good thing. It may be the will of God. It may be biblical, and a lot, but it is not evangelism. Mm-hmm. It's You're not making using the evangelistic methodology to make disciples. Yeah. And I think that's helpful for me. And so I can look at this stuff we're doing as a church and say, this might be good, <clears throat> but let's not pretend this is evangelism. People say, oh, this is evangelism, what we do here. Mm-hmm. Well, I go, oh, okay, are people hearing the evangel right. and are people being invited to believe? Right. And if that's not the case, then it's something, but it isn't evangelism. Sure, sure. Do you want to say something about that? Well, I guess I, I just would say that that it is a challenge. There's lots of churches that do one or the other. And the challenge is to be a church that does both, is to say, we are going to boldly talk about Christ without apology. We're going to talk and call people to faith in Christ to make a decision for Jesus. And we're also going to be particularly alert to the challenges of those that are being pushed down and held down and those that are suffering. And we need to do all those things. Some churches do one side, but they don't do any on the other. Hmm. And uh, it's hard to be a church that does both, but hmm. I think that's what we're called to. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, I guess I was recently reading a study by, is it Barna? Is that the, is that the group? I Maybe. think it's Barna. They yeah. Do, they do studies. Okay. <laughs> they do a <laughs> I lot of studies. I couldn't remember if it started with a B or a V. Um, I think Barna. Uh, and, and it talked about how uh, they kind of broke down uh, millennials, Gen X, boomers and another generation older than that. I can't remember what those guys are called, but like what, what their relationship was to evangelism. And I think the millennials came out to be like 47 or 48% of millennials thought that, uh, evangelism in some sense and, and telling people to convert to Christianity who didn't agree with you was wrong. And so, and yet I also see that the millennials are a generation that they're very focused on like joining nonprofits and doing a lot of volunteer work and helping in the community. And so I was, yeah, I just, that that was a good clarification because I think that sometimes those two things can be conflated and the church has tried to be like, Oh, let's get the millennials in the, in here, like doing volunteer work by telling them that they're also doing evangelism by just doing the volunteer work. And it sounds like those two things aren't, totally the same if, uh, if there's not actual right. evangelism happening. Yeah. Right? John Nyquist was, uh, John Nyquist was my advisor and mentor. I talked with John occasionally. So, uh, yes, fan of John. I think what he said, and I remember the same thing that, uh, the gospel has to be part of the, of the discussion and people need to understand they've got to actually make a decision. Uh, those are the two key points there. Mm-hmm. All right. So you, um, your first ministry job was you were a college pastor in a local church, right? Not in a parachurch college ministry. Is that right? right. In Washington, Bellingham, in right. Bellingham? Bellingham, Washington. Yep. And that did well. You yeah. Were, were you University of Washington or was it a different school? It was Western Washington University. And uh, I was the fifth guy to run something called the Inn, 
Um, and it was, uh, so I started in 1985 and it had been going for, I don't know, 20 years at that point. And, uh, Sherry and I were there. I was the director of the inn for eight years and it grew. Um, you know, we, we got up to 600 students on a Tuesday night, uh, lots of mission trips, small groups, lots of social action. And we would occasionally, you know, have some services or outreaches that would get, 800 and it was a campus of 10,000. So we were sort of, wow, um, that, I mean, it's a lot for a campus so that a, size. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it was great. It was it, our, all three of our boys were born there and, and, uh, lots of, uh, still have, uh, lots of friends from there, the college students or interns. We had, eventually we had a staff of seven or eight Gary Thomas, who's written a bunch of books now, sacred marriage and, um, oh. sacred, uh, well, a sacred, lot of sacred sacred books. search is, is that sacred one? search yes and he's um he's had a number of other books gary was on staff there for a couple of years um yeah it was it was great okay and then later on um you started the ivy jungle which was a network for college it wasn't yep. its own college ministry it was a network for college right. ministers right so we ministered to the men and women who ministered to collegians so it was church-based campus pastors parachurch staff college and university chaplains so yeah. you have some opinions about college ministry. What, like what's happening? Like for people who haven't been college ministry for a while or what, like, is there anything you know about that, that, we, that to share? Like, or like, okay, let, let me ask you, let me ask you a pointed question. The thing you served in was a church-based ministry. There's been this long history with groups like crew and university where churches have been generally supportive. There's not much interplay between them. And both groups say, I wish it was otherwise, mm -hmm. but nothing ever seems to change. Is there some something really good you've seen somewhere? Like, how should churches? What should churches do with our college students? How should we care about? Especially if we, they're like my church. We're like right in a big university town. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything you learned from those experiences to tell people like us? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, I'm you know, Andy, you're you're going through the list of all the people, uh, different generations, and and mm -hmm. uh, as soon as you get up close to my generation, you you you, didn't, you had no you had no terms. We for don't those, even have right? yeah, they're for the people that, that are <laughs> that old. So. For the record, I did this a long time ago, and sure. the inn recently, about a year ago, uh, closed after mm -hmm. running for you know forty years. Uh, it closed down, and and we were a church-based campus ministry. We operated. It was out of a PCUSA church. It was um, much more of a of an evangelical ministry. We met on Tuesday nights, and again, we would meet on, on campus, and there was a lot of benefits to having that connection to the church. Not many of the college students attended on Sunday morning. And then uh, and, and the, there was a transition of pastors, and a new pastor came on, and he says, why can't we get any of these college students to come on Sunday morning? Hmm. And I said, oh, well, we could, but you know, it has to look like this instead of like that. And I said, we could do it if you want to do it, but here's what's going to happen. And so that church that, so the campus ministry was, you know, when it was 600, 700, the church was about 200. So it was a real sacrifice for the church to pay my salary, although not that much of a sacrifice. It wasn't that much of a salary, but they, uh, so, so we changed it. And in the next like 18 months, the church grew to a thousand. So we just got all these college students coming now. That was really fun, and they brought a lot of energy, and they brought a lot of young families. The problem is college students have got no money. They took all the parking. They filled up the pews, 
And literally at some point we had to, we had to say, how do we get rid of some of these college students? Because like, we're going to go under, like we got to clear out room for people who have, you know, $5 they can put in the offering. I mean, the college students were there. They were taxing all the property, right? They were breaking things. (laughs) They were, they were eating our food and drinking our coffee and not putting anything in it. So it's a challenge in that sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's also a challenge just to the budget because parents naturally want things for their kids and the college students are often away at college. So, okay, you want me to pay for somebody else's kid to show up here and college students can take a lot of time. I mean, you're asking what's going on in college ministry. And I know that in talking with some friends that are on staff with crew and university and other things, it's a hard time. It's a, it's a hard season and numbers are down and staff recruiting is down and all that. And it's a, it's a, you know, the university, I mean, I think the bigger question is, you know, what's happening in the university in terms of discussions about truth and uh, academic freedom and the ability to have any kind of conversation about some of these issues without it being a, a trigger warning to other people. So I think it's a, it's a much more difficult time. I would not want to try and coach you, Nick, right now about how to do something at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, other than to say, uh, you know, investing in collegians, it, it, investing in college ministry is a blessing to the broader church. And I think uh, I used to have a conference with the Ivy Jungle would have conferences for college pastors. We had a conference for university church pastors. So it was at Princeton. John Stott was one of the presenters. Earl Palmer was the senior pastor at University Press was another. And we called together senior pastors from and Mark Laberton, who became the president of Fuller, uh, was the third presenter. And we called together college pastors, pastors of churches in college towns. And we said, we really, really want you to think about what strategic real estate you you have and how you can invest in college ministry to try and help all these kids that come out of high school youth groups and then are gone. Mm-hmm. So it's hard work. It's, it's, it's gospel work. It's apostolic, you know, until soil right now. Mm-hmm. It's hard. I, should I push? I don't know. Do you yeah, want me I'm going to gonna use, move on to futurism after this. If you want to push, you, Andy has thoughts about college ministries. Sure. The only thing, the only thing, I, I guess I know you said you are, haven't been that involved in it. Obviously, you have your own church and you're doing that. Um, the the one the one issue that I think I saw in the college ministry that was frustrating was that a lot of different college ministries seem to focus on one particular thing. So maybe evangelism, maybe Bible studies, maybe discipleship. And whereas the local church is called to focus on all of these things and sure. to equip, equip people to be strong Christians through all these things. Um, and I think that what happens is when you focus in on one of them, it can be diluted or, uh, it, like the, the gospel can start to become watered down because you don't have theologians or people who are like, no, 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 this is the truth and you need to keep it here. Um, and so I've seen friends and people that I've known after they get done with college ministries, completely walk away from the faith and be done with it because they get to a local church and they realize, Oh, the, the minute college ministry is nothing like this. Yeah. Um, I don't, is there any sort of connection that people should make between like 
if you're going to be a part of a college ministry, would should they also be a part of a local church? How did you yeah. deal with that stuff? When you, I mean, you were directly connected to a local church. Do you think that's right. a better way of doing it? Or I, and you don't well, have to. I mean, if you don't yeah, want. Yeah, no. I mean, look. There's uh, there's different ministries have different strengths and different focus. You know, we're going to work only with athletes, or we're going to work only sure. with grad yeah. students, or only with faculty, or only with uh, evangelism, or only with whatever. And so, yeah, they, they can be, they can be skewed as can lots of churches. As we just said, some churches only do X and they don't do Y. Um, I want to think, I want to, I mean, you know, skewed self, um, self-referential thinking here. Uh, I feel like we did evangelism. We did small groups. We did, uh, sort of, um, outreach, uh, to athletes and tried to reach out to musicians and we tried to cultivate uh, apologetics and do all that kind of stuff. So it was a little bit more broad based. Now the challenge that we had, and I had pastors come to me and say, look, you're setting these students up to leave the church. So they're coming on Tuesday night. Um, yeah. Yeah whatever, 600 students are there packed in the room, lots of energy, lots of humor, you know, drama. Uh, obviously there's a whole romantic, uh, enterprise there about, you know, there to find somebody to go out on a date with. And, and they said, uh, they're going to go to the church and the church is going to be nothing like this. And they're going to walk away. And I said, you know, with all humility of being whatever I was, how old are you? 23. I was going to say I was 24. So that, that I'm be, almost 24. Okay. So okay. All the humility of a 24 year old. I was just going to say, well, why don't you do a better job? Like, as opposed to asking me to do a worse job, why don't you do a better job? Uh, now, part of the challenge is that there's nothing quite like college. So everybody's sort of on the same plane. Like if you've got money and somebody else doesn't have money, it doesn't really show up when you're in college. You're all living in the dorm or you're living in the fraternity. And, you know, you're not really doing your laundry and you're hanging out in class and everybody's the same age. And it's really, it's a, it's a wonderful time to do ministry. It's just nothing really like life. What's going to come when it hits. So there's a definite, fall off. And I was part of a study trying to figure out where all these college ministry people go. You know, Crusade says we've got 600 chapters and they've got, you know, average attendance of 50 and you add up those people and you just, you just do it for all of them. Cause again, we had, we had about 8,000 men and women that ministered to collegians. And we did some studies and try and push on some of these numbers of all the things that were going on. And we go, where do all these people go? Like we right. can't account for them. They're not in the church. They're not in the church. Right. And we tried to, so then we would bring. To, to, so for context there, I remember being told about somebody who went on a spring break crew trip. Okay. So you, these are people who are in crew. Yep. They're in college. They're in crew. They're committed enough in crew that they spend a good portion of their summer on a trip where they go out and do evangelism virtually every day. Yep. And one, some of the staff said, listen, here's what we found out is that somewhere between 65 and 70% of you guys aren't going to be in the church in four years. Yeah. It's like, yeah, whoa. It's one thing you're like, because like some, there's been a drop off of between 16, 80% of people from youth group to that point. Yep. Yep. And then to know that there's an, and you think if you're at that point, surely at that point they're secure. Nope. No, there's no, another no. 70% drop off after that. Hey, now, there's, also, similar... there's also been a regathering. Yep. Right. The, the groups have gathered some more people, but they're still going to, that's just seems wild. Is there similarities between the church 
When, when, okay, yeah. so like, because I got bad news for you, Nick. Mm-hmm. This is coming to a church near you. You want to know the next time people leave the church? As soon as they become empty nesters, mm-hmm. the number of married couples who stop showing up at church as soon as they get their last kid through the high school program is very disappointing. It's stunning. So we started a ministry. First of all, let me, let me back up and say, we would bring in graduates. So people who've been out of the, out in the field, you know, got a job wherever and been out working for the last three, four years. We bring them back to talk to the graduating seniors and say, here's what it's going to be like when you leave, <laughs> you know, the dorm and the Bible study that you're in and the fact that, you know, and, and you're now out in the workplace and church is a bunch of old people that can't relate to you and the music isn't any good. And da, 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 da. You're going to have to fight for this. So we, we tried that, but we, I would hold at the conferences, I'd hold these workshops saying we got a huge fumble from the high school students from the high school ministries to college. And then we got this huge fumble at the other end. We're focusing on these four years. We got to figure out how to focus on the 10. Mm. But we have started a ministry uh, to empty nesters because especially the empty nesters who, uh, who have got money now we're going to, we're going to get a place, you know, in the Dells, we're going to get a place in, uh, uh, Southern Illinois. We're gonna get a. We're gonna get a place in Florida. We're gonna get a place here, and and we're traveling a lot. And then you know, wow, our parents are. They need a lot of help. And and pretty soon you're going months without seeing people at church. And now there's church that's online, but that's it's suboptimal uh, to having them be together. So it's almost as if. Uh, Empty nesters are high school students. They're coming into independence. And the difference is they've got money. And so there's another big transition point that is a that is a huge key strategic opportunity. But right now it's a liability for the church. We see people walk away. Not from Jesus. They I, almost nobody says they're walking away from Jesus, but they they end up walking away from the church. I mean, what does that, I guess, what does that mean though? Because I'm thinking, I'm looking at myself right now, like, okay, if they have, let's say they have three kids and they have 23, 25 years in the church yep. and their kid graduates and then they're all three kids graduate. And then these empty nesters end up kind of walking away from the church in some way or another, not, not necessarily trying to walk away from the church, but what, I guess, wouldn't there be, a, wouldn't we, wouldn't we say, well, I guess the church had an opportunity for 25 years and what are we doing wrong there? Yep. No, I, I, that's, that's got to be part of the question. And part of it is just the reality. So, mm-hmm. But you've had this problem in your church. Oh, yes. Got okay. this problem in our church. And you preach in ecclesiology and you preach commitment to Jesus right. yeah. is entailed. Commitment to the church and Jesus are entailed together. And you, you preach all that stuff, don't you? Yes. Sure. Sure. But, but, and yes, but here's the reality, Right. So you spend 25 years raising your kids and that's, you know, that's, that's heavy lifting for 25 years. I mean, it's a lot of sacrifice and, 
and you and again, those are the hard, hard years. And then all of a sudden, the pressure lifts. I talked about this in this last setting we were at. You know, all of a sudden, the kids are gone, and you're looking across the table, and you're like, "Wow, we could go golfing. We could go, uh, we could go on a three day weekend. We could go, we could get a cabin. We've got money. We could get a cabin here. We could go there. We could go on this cruise. Let's go to Europe." And it's a little bit of a well, and again, there's a sense of like sort of. Yeah, we earned this. We deserve this. We're not walking away from Jesus. I'm, 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 I'm plugged and this, in. And this isn't retirement. It's no. empty nesting. So these people, are, a lot of them are still working. Still working. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's, of course, it's even more significant because you can work remotely. Like, oh, I'm going to work from, you know, I'm going to work from uh, Florida. Yeah. And, and get, get plugged in, in at a church in Florida a little bit, but not to the same extent that, you know, I'm plugged in here. So it's, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge in figuring out how to create catalytic spiritual community. And I think, I don't know this for sure, but for a lot of people, it's a couple years. And then they sort of come back and they go, Wow. And oftentimes something bad happens and they're like, you know what? We got to get back to our small group. I, we got to get back to, we got to get back to church. I got to, I, you know, sort of like, this wasn't an intentional thing. It's not like as soon as this happens, we're not going to come to church on Sunday morning. It's just, I mean, Hey, I missed church last weekend here. I was in church with my mom, but I've got a mom who's, you know, 86 years old. And when I can get to see her, I'm like, I, I want to go see my mom. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people that are caring for their parents. And then yeah. we're going to college. Our son's playing football this weekend. So we're going down to Duke and we're going to be at the game. And I'm going to, we're not going to get back for church. I mean, it just starts to happen with an mm-hmm. affluent lifestyle. You got more options. You're traveling, you're doing other things. And we see that. So I don't, Andy, yes and amen, we got a problem. We got a problem getting high school kids into good college ministries that are holistic and that are setting people up for churches. And we got a problem holding people in churches as they move through some of the transitions in their own life. And Nick, I mean, you alluded, you know, you alluded to some of this uh, already today when you just talk about, you know, just the, just the, the ways that we can drift or dissipate or, you know, head down different paths. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm just saying, yes, you're onto a problem and it's, it's as big as you think and maybe bigger. Yeah. It is interesting that they do come back because I think, I think when I was in high school, I completely walked away and it feels like that's the same exact, it's like a similar thing. My family was in church and then we walked and then I went to high school, felt more freedom, walked away. And then four years later I came back to the church. So it's, it's an interesting, those two things seem to parallel in some capacity. I think that happens with a lot of young people. They'll either go to right. high school or to college, walk away and then come back afterwards if they're truly safe. There's a lot of, yes. And so you got a theological component there. You got a sociological component there. There's a lot of people who believe People will come back to church later on when they get married and uh, have kids. Now, um, but that gap is getting that gap is getting bigger, and And like uh, so many people aren't having children at all. Right? Yeah, involuntarily childlessness is what they're calling it. Mary Eberstadt. I don't know. You familiar with that name? Yeah, she's Harvard. Nick Eberstadt's wife. Mm -hmm. Yes. Have you read read her book, The Losing Letters? 
The no, loser lives. I read the um, I read her book on religious freedom. Okay, she's she's so she wrote a book called Loser Letters, which is a C.S. Lewis um, screw tape letters spinoff. Mm-hmm. Fascinating, so funny, so so such a biting wit. So it is a young atheist writing, and she writes these letters to um, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and uh, you know Sam Harris and whatever the new atheists. And she's a, the newest convert. She's just renounced her faith. And she goes, I am so excited. And she goes, I just have questions. And so over the course of these, you know, 20 questions, she's just unmasking things. And oh, it is so, it is wonderful. The Loser Letters the by loser Mary Eberstadt. The Loser Letters by Mary Eberstadt. But her thesis, worth noting, is it's not that, how does she say this? It's not that people aren't getting married. Therefore they're not coming back to church. It's that they're not in church. Therefore they're not getting married. Okay. And listen, I can tell you from sheer absolute experience at this church that like the, we're they're getting married because they go here together. They're coming in week after week and they're coming week after week. They're in small groups together. They're playing volleyball at night together and they're meeting people. They're going on dates. They're getting married and they're hearing me say from stage, Get married. Find somebody suitable to marry. Not the perfect person, not your dream, whatever, but like something, somebody who can love you and you can love them back. Get married and have children. And they hear that message. They're here together and it happens. Yeah. 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 Well, good for you. And uh, it's, it is important for society and we're failing at this level. And in my, I mean, maybe this is a transition. I know you want to talk about the future, but in the book, Future View, which I wrote, I don't know, six, seven years ago. Has it been that long? Uh, well, I don't know. Um, go on anyway, in the book, future view, uh, I had a chapter on the coming depopulation problem before Elon made it popular before it was popular, but I pulled it because when I had people read the book, it's all they wanted to talk about. And it was very negative and I'm like, yeah. I was writing the book for a variety of reasons. So I was doing this thing with the Murdoch Charitable Trust in which uh, we were trying to do a strategic plan for the church. And I realized I have no idea what's coming. Like, I just don't know how to even look four or five years in the future and figure this stuff out. And this is what I had done, strategic planning I'd done for a long time. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And then uh, additionally, I was worried about some big impending, I ended up in the book, I called them monsters under the bed. And I said, if there is a nuclear war, if there is a pandemic, if there is, I mean, I, I just named a handful of things. And I said, we're not ready. Like, I'm not ready. If, 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 if society suddenly unravels, I'm not ready. And if I'm one of the ones that's supposed to be ready, <laughs> like I'm in charge, I got to figure some things out. So that's what led to writing the book. And I wanted it to be sort of an opportunity for me to speak to non-Christian groups and to sort of have an opportunity to do a soft sell of the gospel and the church and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So when people were just only wanting to talk about population and how negative and how bad it was and what was coming, I was like, that's not really what I'm after here. So I pulled it and I regret pulling it. Because I would have looked a lot smarter had I left it in. (laughs) Writing a book on the future is a very humbling event. If if the book is still around, you know, five years later. Yeah, but I mean, my I remember reading it and calling you and being like, "This is what I think too." 
I mean, I you you did a more yeah. thorough job, but like this is all very intuitive. This yeah. is how I think about it too. We were talking about like how to plan, and there's just only so many things you can do, right? But, but depopulation is like it's just something. Like when I was a kid, people were like, "Oh my gosh, the population explosion! Right. We're all gonna die." Right. And that was true. And the people are still saying that. Yeah, yeah, so, that's, yeah. A, that's a big narrative right now. Well, can we? Yeah, but it's amazing how birth rates, even in countries that it used to, birth rates used to be seven, four to seven children per woman, have plummeted. Right. Like Iran is I'm one of the great example that was like it was like between five and seven just a generation ago, and then boom, give women high school education access to birth control, and it is one point two as fast as you can blink. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, can we... Okay, you, you wrote a book. What is a book called? Future View. And so, can we give like a general overview as to what this book is about? And I know you guys kind Mike of just talked can. about it. Yeah, you, yep. Mike, can you give me a general overview? Yep. You kind of just talked about it, but... So, yeah, very simply, I, I said, um, I'm not... Like, I'm not a futurist. There's actually a... In, in, there is a field that's developing... I've got a I've got a good conspiracy theory about it. If if you know if that's your podcast, you want to go there. <laughs> uh, but there's a field of of sort of predicting what's going to happen. But you have a conspiracy theory about the field or about yeah yeah about about what happens. So I I mean this is I'll do this in thirty seconds. Sure. So they did some big longitudinal studies to see if people were good at predicting the future, and they determined that nobody was. Hmm. And, but they noticed that there were some people who seemed to be good, but they were good in, they were good usually outside their field. So people who were economists were not very good about predicting the economy. Just, mm. you know, it's, it's so, but there were some people who seemed to be good at predicting. And they found that when they put these people together, that they got much better results. So this was going on. It was a big longitudinal study, big data study, and it was being funded by the CIA. And these guys were writing these articles and developing this theory. And then all of a sudden they go silent. It's like, you can't find them. And I'm like, the CIA sort of said, Hey, this is working. We're not going to put this out there for other people to look at that. that, I've asked that question. Mm -hmm. Nobody seems to know. Anyway, I said, I'm not trying, I'm not a futurist. I'm not trying to look 10 years out and predict things. I just want to say there are three or four macro trends that have been in effect for 50 to the last 500 years. And in the next three to four years, it's pretty obvious where they're going. Hmm. And they're telling you where they're going. And so we just ought to look at what's in the pipeline that's coming our way. And then say, okay, am I ready for that? What are the... I mean, so one of them was, you know, the expansion of technology. Yeah. yeah and so yeah. I said, they're talking about artificial intelligence. And right. they're talking about nanotechnology. And they're talking about... And, and the implications of, you know, how supercomputing is going to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. And what, what this means, self-driving cars, and what that would mean. And you sort of play these things out. Uh, all this stuff in terms of military applications and you just read the stuff that's out there these things are in the pipeline yeah it's it's funny that you bring that up because I, I the other day i started listening to a joe rogan podcast with like a some physicist some dude that was very smart and he's talking about ai and the implications that it's going to have and i'm my wife and i are listening and we're both like we don't even understand the words that this guy yeah. is saying. We trust him or whatever, yeah. but it's like, what what is this going to look like with the AI stuff? Especially, I mean, you have like the chat right. GBT and all that stuff. That's yeah, yeah. an interesting well, question. 
So, so you've got a whole group of technological, you just say, look, technology has been, the, the pace of technological advance has been increasing exponentially. Mm-hmm. In the next three to five years, it's likely going to continue. Mm-hmm. That, that was my premise. And what's in the pipeline? What's coming? Mm-hmm. What does Apple say they're going to introduce? Like, mm-hmm. okay. There's nuclear, there was a nuclear fission. Is that what it's called? Fission, that, that was another yeah, thing. That, changing energy, yeah. right? Absolutely. Oh, interesting. All yeah. kinds and, of different fields. Right, because so like in theory, if you can get computing to where it can do experiments without having to do the experiments, in theory, you could do 100 years of research in 35 minutes. Gosh. And right. in theory, you could come up with things like fission, right. like these things yeah. that we have been able to, if, right. if in fact they're possible. Well, they, uh, yeah. So, so Kevin Kelly, uh, who is the closest, I mean, he's a futurist and uh, a, a Christian and interesting guy. He's just been on the Tim Ferriss podcast. Again, I met Kelly when I was writing this book and, uh, and he would say that this idea that, you know, you're going to have computers that are going to design faster computers that are going to design more powerful computers. And pretty soon you're just going to have mm-hmm. this, you know, a, a tornado of, of right. advancing cyclone of advancements. He says, that's not going to happen. Lots of people talk about it. They name the day of singularities imply that we're going to, you know, download our personality onto a computer because it's all the stuff is going to be made possible. Kelly says, that's just not the way advances are made. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't think that's going to happen. But things get smaller, things get faster, mm-hmm. things get cheaper. You got all kinds of technology. The second thing we talked about, I wrote about was globalization, mm-hmm. that the world's getting smaller. Now, arguably, that's the one where you've had a lot less. I think globalization is still happening. The, the world is a smaller place than it used to be. But mm-hmm. it's... Um, there's been a lot of pushback on globalization. Uh, America's, um, you know, not as willing to be the police officer for the world as it yeah. was maybe five years ago, 10 years ago. By globalization, are you talking like governmentally that there, that the, is that kind of what you're saying? You say the world is getting smaller. And I like when I think of globalization, the first name that comes to my head is Alex Jones. I don't know if you know who Alex Jones is. He's like, gotten oh, kicked off of yeah, 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 people yeah, think yeah. he's insane and he's yeah. had some talking about the conspiracy like yeah the the, the, the global lack of taking local over. control that you have yeah. if globalization exactly yeah. yeah so what are you talking about yeah exactly? no i'm just basically saying that you're seeing that the world gets smaller and more interconnected and there's a lot more trade sure. and there's a lot sure. more um so it used to be you know that what was happening in Iran didn't bother me. I didn't even know about Iran. I didn't even know what the global map looked like. Right. right? I was not going to travel. Now everything is connected Mm -hmm. and it's just a, it's a, the world is a much smaller place. Yeah. An economic butterfly can beat its wings somewhere and it create a problem somewhere else. Right. 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 Uh, A third thing that I talked about was, uh, was social, sexual and marital dynamics were changing. Mm Mm-hmm. And just said, look, the, the, you know, you back up to the pill and the, what is it? 1949, 1950 or 1959. You're talking about the pill? The pill. Yeah. It was in the sixties. Yeah. I think you invented in 59 and sort of rolls out in the sixties. So you've, you've had obviously massive changes in social, sexual and marital dynamics Mm -hmm. and that these are going to have real impacts Mm -hmm. on the world. And then the fourth thing that I said is, uh, was this just a change in sort of philosophy, religious 
worldview, there's been all kinds of changes, and we're basically seeing uh, a Darwinian uh, movement in mm-hmm. which the worldviews are narrowing, and you have a handful of worldviews that are achieving preeminence. But there's a there's a lot of confusion out there, mm-hmm. and people don't know how they know what they know or mm-hmm. what's mm-hmm. what's true and. So from the East, you've got Buddhism, basically. I mean, Hinduism doesn't mm. really transfer outside of India. From, uh, from you've got the rise of Islam. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, Europe giving us secularism, although Europe is sort of collapsing. Secularism as an idea, as an ideology, as an influence is growing in, uh, you know, all the editorial offices in uh, New York and uh, faculty offices around the world. And so they're exporting that. Western Civ is sort of collapsing mm-hmm. under its own. Secular people don't have children, and so it's collapsing. But you've got secularism, you've got Islam, you've got Buddhism. These are the big competitors to Christianity. And then what I called uh, the just the sort of, um, I mean, it gets, it gets called Sheilaism by uh, uh, Habits of the Heart guy. I just said it's sort of this proliferation of the spiritual but not religious this amalgamation of everybody picking all kinds of crazy ideas and they end up merging a little bit of of uh jesus with hinduism and ayn rand and the chicago cubs and you know republican (laughs) politics and they're vegans and they've got these self-contradictory worldviews that they advance and i said those are out there and that seems to be continuing to move towards greater confusion and chaos could you just would call you, that would you add a worldview to that now that we've seen like like the post george floyd the increase of mm-hmm. expressions of critical theories in all kinds of different venues and it's and and its application to even transhumanism relative to trans theory and trans medical theory like something like transhumanism or gnostic identitarianism or i mean i don't know what you'd call it but would, would you add something or do you think that that's just an advanced yeah. form of Sheilaism, or, or or what? Yeah, I I don't think that that though. So, yeah, I could go either way. I mean, you could start to argue that this is a uh, this is a movement. Certainly, it's it's big on higher education campuses. I don't see it, and it's it's playing loudly <clears throat> in a lot of left media streams. I don't see it as much. I don't think it rises to the level of Islam or uh, Buddhism or uh, secularism yet. I just think it's just part of the general confusion. What do you What do you define as secularism? Because I, I guess when I think of secularism, and this might be a generational thing again, what I thought of secularism was that there's like a ton of branches that can stem off of secularism, including transhumanism, postmodernism, expressive individualism. So a lot of these different isms um, that are just secular at their core. Is that what you're saying or what do you mean by secular? Well, I guess, I I guess probably for this discussion, what I would say is secular means people are trying to push away any sort of transcendent ideology and argue for this, what they would say is this, uh, neutral public square, which I would say is not neutral at all. It's yeah, very, right. uh, it's, it's very aggressively being policed by an ideology. Mm-hmm. And I remember going back to, this was one of my first, um, I mean, I had, I had a couple moments in my sort of, uh, exploration or understanding of what was going on in the world. One was, so William Lane Craig, uh, now big apologist, he was, um, 
I was a student of his in a seminar class. I went with him to a college campus where for the first time he was exposed to somebody who said that God was transrational and didn't hold to the law of non-contradiction. And literally for two hours, Craig and this guy debated whether or not you could give up the law of non-contradiction and have a discussion. It didn't go anywhere. Didn't go anywhere. And it, later on, we come to realize, oh, this, this is sort of this move past modernity. Then I had a discussion with a with a dean at Western Washington University. He was arguing. We were doing a, um, we used to call these dorm talks, where I would speak in a dorm lobby to a bunch of college students. And it was always some opportunity, some excuse to talk about a topic, but pivot to some expression of the gospel. You got to back up. I mean, again, this is 35 years ago. So it's a different culture. Even Western Washington was considered one of the most secular college campuses. Washington State was one of the least churched campuses, and they did all kinds of things that at the time were just shocking. Like, nobody was talking about this. There was Outdoor Intercourse Day. There was, you know, Sexual Minority Center. There was just a lot of things that are now very sort of mainstream. But I'm talking with this faculty, this dean, and she says, you know, you have to be neutral in this talk. (laughs) And I'm like, well... Uh, okay, that's not a neutral statement. Like you're forcing your your view on me and you're saying your view is neutral and that my view is opinionated, but that's your view. And I don't think that's neutral at all. And mm-hmm. furthermore, neutrality meant that I had to talk about, uh, I had to give equal voice to atheism and every other, you know, the Wiccans and every other thing when I'm talking. And I'm just like, this is crazy. Right. And she goes, the university is not a place to have discussions about these big topics. And I'm like, right. That's this is crazy. Right. <laughs> you, you don't right. even know what you're talking about. So, The university is literally the only place. It's the place to have those discussions. It's literally the opposite of that. Well, that's what it was created for, at least. Right. I mean, you go back, you read the charters of you know Harvard and Yale and Princeton, and it's all about, it's all about advocating Jesus and training clergy for the new world. But yeah, then it's supposed to be a place where you pursue truth and pursue the big questions and, you know, get a well-rounded education and think about first things and all that. And now, now it's become the antithesis of that. So anyway, just to, to go back to the book, there were those four topics. And I said, this is the direction these four things are headed. And if nothing happens, and I said, there are these five monsters under the bed, people claim are going to upend us. So one of them is a nuclear war or uh, this uh, nuclear pulse, right? If somebody detonates a nuclear bomb over the U.S. and it fries all the, all the circuitry, mm. there's a pandemic. So, I mean, this is, again, you know, we're on the other side of COVID. But at the time, I went to, uh, I went to the people that were working in the drug companies and I said, what are you working on? Like, what's, you know... What's your what's your nightmare scenario? Why do you guys think about this? And they go, oh, we think that it's likely that at some point in the next 20 to 30 years, some bug or virus or something will get out and somewhere between 2 and 20 million people will die. And it'll be a sprint to try and contain it. You go, okay, well, if that happens, that changes things. Although I did not begin to understand the whole lockdown thing you know that was or the economic impact of the lockdown uh looked at uh nucleus so nuclear bomb uh 
pandemic, the, pandemic, yeah. the nuclear pulse. Uh, there's another one and I can't think of it, but the, the last one that I went to was, I said, the thing that I'm most worried about is some conglomeration of a bunch of these things. Oh, mm-hmm. one of them was climate change. So I said, uh-huh. if climate change is as bad as some people predict, then, uh, then, you know, some would argue again, uh, uh, that it is the existential threat of the moment. So I said, let's just imagine that, we have uh, climate change that leads to flooding, that leads to displacement of people, that leads to some social decay among, uh, among some communities, that leads to a rise of totalitarian governments, that leads to a nuclear bomb. I go, it's sort of, and then you got the pandemic happening and you got all that stuff happening mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. That uh, is, it just seems to me like we're not well positioned to navigate all those challenges. Now, the one thing I did not talk about, and I pulled the chapter, I had the fifth chapter, which is, I said, we're headed towards a depopulation. And I pulled that because I just said, it's all people want to talk about. And I, um, I didn't want to make this. Book about what it. about the question? One of the things you, I remember one of your future papers relative to Illinois yeah. was that, there were major governmental financial crises on the way for the United States in particular, but this is true of basically all industrialized countries that we have made future commitments to people that incredibly drastic, like it's not even anywhere near close. It's like incredibly drastically outstrip any possibility that we could ever pay them. Basically like pension, when you had pension benefits to social welfare, to social security, all these things that we've already made promises for and that we've already spent the money. Yep. That in addition to our only barely, only barely sustainable debt, we have additional promissory debts that are ten to a hundred times higher than that debt, and that that is gonna, that is going to create a fundamental crisis. Like in Illinois, my understanding is that it's in the state constitution that you can't change pension benefits. Right. And right. so, like, you have to literally do a constitutional change to avoid that in Illinois, and that you were like, right. this is going to be a problem. Right. So, like, ma- massive leadership mismanagement is another monster in the yeah. bed, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I'd say a couple of things. First of all, one of the things that I learned when I uh, was doing this research is solutions surprise you. Problems are easy to extrapolate and see how a problem is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. The solution to the problem comes from left field and you don't see it until it, it arrives. So Kevin Kelly, this guy I mentioned, um, futurist, I, I run into him in a hotel in uh, hotel lobby in Colorado. And again, I'm writing this book on the future. And Kevin Kelly, is he started Wired Magazine, and he's a prominent thinker uh, about the future. And I'm, I mean, he sees, you know, when I'm like, Kevin Kelly, oh my goodness, I'm writing, I'm writing this book on the future. I, I can't believe that. Can I talk with you? And I can tell right away, he's like, yeah, I'm not talking to this Yahoo. Like, uh, get me out of here. And he says, I'll give you one question. And I said, okay. And I thought, and I said, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? And he said, oh, I'm wildly optimistic. And he said, what about you? And I said, you know, I started this because I was pessimistic, but I'm, I'm getting a little bit more optimistic I said, but I've got concerns. And he goes, oh, let me guess. You're worried that all the jobs are going to go away. And I go, well, yeah, I am worried about that. He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, they are. But we're going to create all these new jobs. And so he starts listing all these bizarre new jobs. Mm -hmm. And I said, 
that sounds fascinating and interesting and, and fun. I said, but it also sounds like you got to have a degree from MIT to get any of those jobs. Mm -hmm. He goes, well, we're going to have to have a lot of education. I said, okay, well, I'm a pastor working at a church. We're, we're working in a community that, that 52% of the, of the black males at this school. And it's predominantly, it's a black community. 52% of the men uh, are dropping out. Like they turn 16 and they drop out. And I said, so they don't even have a high school degree. I said, what's going to happen? Like, I said, we're trying to figure out how to get them, you know, back in school, trying to help them get through, trying to help people get community college degrees, get trade skills, whatever. And he goes, oh, yeah, no. He goes, they're, yeah, it's game over for them. He says, this world will not wait for them. <laughs> he goes, the next 40 years are going to be chaos. And I said, Okay, well, Kevin, I've only got the next 40 years. Like, I'm already 50. I'll be 90 when you think that this is going to get better. Now, so I, I just want to frame this and say, we've got real problems coming. And the fiscal mismanagement, to me, continues to be a problem. I saw today that Warren Buffett is bullish on the United States. And I go, how? Like, I don't understand it. Now, Illinois is... Moody's ra rated Illinois, this is a couple years ago now, uh, but Rudy, Moody's rated Illinois as the uh, state with the poorest bond rating. At the time, it was just a tick or two above junk bond status. Mm -hmm. And I went, uh, I went to um, a number of sort of prominent gov government officials and got at the time to a former chief of staff of the president of the United States. I talked to some people in the governor's office. I talked to other people and I said, what in the world is the president of the United States going to do when Illinois' bond rating falls to junk status? Because then when that happens, right, then of course the markets are, or when, when Illinois defaults on a loan, mm -hmm. there is no constitutional provision for a state to fail. Cities can fail like Detroit did. Mm -hmm. uh, nations can print money Right. They don't fail. They print money. It's a different kind of economic they, Yeah, they fail by having hyperinflation. Right. Businesses can declare bankruptcy, right. but there's no provision for a state to declare bankruptcy. So during the Civil War, there was a day when the state of Alabama was in default, but it then sort of turned things around. And so so if Illinois cannot pay its debt, I mean, it's a, it's a math problem. It cannot honor its obligations. Who are its creditors, right? Like, how do you become a creditor of the state of Illinois? Well, you, so to date, being a creditor, you, Illinois floats its bonds and the market buys them at right. a certain rate. Sure. And part of the reason that they'll buy these bonds is because it's guaranteed. Right. No state states, has ever defaulted. Right. States can default. Now, as soon as it defaults. But what are, what's the state's collateral, right? Like, yeah. What's going to happen? Right. Well, do you own part of the Capitol building or something? Like right. So, so look, the, the logic is, I mean, people say, well, look, here's, here, here's what's going to happen. Some, first of all, they said, um, the, I said, will the president bail out Illinois? Mm -hmm. And he said, not a chance. Now that was a Republican president and Illinois right. is a democratic state. state. Yeah. So maybe would a Democratic president bail Illinois? We actually got $3 billion. Illinois got $3 billion out of this COVID, one of the first relief uh, COVID efforts. But that's, that's not like, that's not even a dent in the kind of money we're talking, right? No, 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 no. And it couldn't be used to pay 
uh, any debt off. And so it just was used in new programs. And so right. we're not going to go there. But but I said, if if Illinois can't make its payments, then and it defaults, I go, then the bond markets are going to adjust the inflation, you know, the, the interest rates are going to go up. And I go, then you, you get to spiral down. But, but if a state can fail, then if I'm a bond guy, what am I going to do with California? What am I going to do with New York? Well, there's no way that the president can let California default. I, I mean, I, I'm not an economist. I'm just trying to figure out what's going to happen. And, uh, yeah, I think they have to, though. Like- so somebody will have to get involved. The courts, maybe some, uh, you'd like to think that, that you know, the mature uh, adults uh, across the aisle will get together and say, okay, look. Well, all four of them? I mean, like, what are we talking <laughs> well, about? I don't know. But, but look, it, it's a, it's a pro- so here's what's going to have to happen to fix Illinois. You're going to have to renegotiate the the constitution the entire yeah you're All gonna, the pension programs. and cut some of the pension programs you're the bond markets are going to uh take a loss and taxes are going to go up i mean it's just it's what, what's what is going to happen so i wrote an open letter to pastors in illinois and i said look i i'm not an economist here's what all these people are saying here's what i know as a pastor uh, I think it's likely that at some point in the future, the state of Illinois is going to have to start cutting social programs because it's not going to have the money to fund them. And at that point, there will be a need and an opportunity mm-hmm. for the church to do more. Mm-hmm. Now, the challenge is going to be the church is going to have less because people right. with money are leaving the state of Illinois in droves. Yeah, And so you're going to have fewer people with money and you're going to have more people that have needs. Now, that said, please understand, it will still be better in Illinois than it has been most of the places around the world for the last 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. So, Are they still going to get the tax rate? Will the, they'll stay the same if, that's, if this starts happening? If you get rid of social programs? It depends on No, people... you're going you're gonna to have to raise taxes. You'll raise taxes. They'll raise, so ta- they'll raise taxes be... and get less revenue. Well, the law for curve, yes. So people just won't have as much money re- across the board, and so this is going to be well, harder for the church. Long, I think it's a long slide. Now, there, is there a, might be some hope that if the federal government inflates the money enough, then the yeah. debt of Illinois will seem yeah, smaller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that, so there's our solution. Okay, so that's probably getting a little too in the weeds for some of our listeners. What do you think this is going to mean for churches in Illinois and then for like churches in places like Wisconsin or Churches in California and then churches in places where people like in Texas where they might flee from California. Yeah. Can I ask one clarifying question? Your book and what you say that we're not prepared, we weren't prepared for some of these things, like what we're talking about. Are you talking, is your book directly talking to Christians or are you just making a general, we're not prepared? We like in what you're talking about right now, obviously you wrote an open letter to pastors. Yep. But is this like directed towards Christians specifically? Future, or? future view, I don't think is. Future view was not written particularly to, to Christians. It was just okay. trying to say okay. this is what I think is happening. The the yeah. open letter to pastors was to say, Clearly look, there's an opportunity here, and again, mm-hmm. there have been there are real real problems in the world, mm-hmm. and for the most part, I don't have them, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And people living in Illinois don't have them. And even if taxes go up and some of these programs are, are cut, lots of people won't have them. But there will be people that are hurting, and there will be an opportunity for the church to love and serve people. Mm-hmm. I think for people in northern Wisconsin, you're going to see uh, people with money coming to Wisconsin to get out of paying taxes in Illinois if they really need to be close to Illinois for their job. You're also going to see people who need social programs coming across the, pro- across the border because this is a better place to get them. I, I think that's what will happen. Now, I keep holding out hope. that The, the thing that I'm hearing about more recently is, because I, I sort of mapped out three scenarios. Uh, one scenario was that Illinois managed through a number of, um, of good leadership moves to slowly climb out of this problem, and it fixed it without ever defaulting. Uh, one was Illinois crashed quickly so mm-hmm. that you got to fix everything this defaults. Everything goes to zero, fix the problem uh, and move forward. And the third, which was the least desirable, was it just kept inching along, failing, coming back a little bit. It, it doesn't ever really fix the problem. And that's on into perpetuity because until you wrestle some of these things down, it's not going to get better. Mm-hmm. So people, I asked a bunch of people, what are the odds that Illinois can grow its way out of these problems? And they said, basically zero. <laughs> so now there's a lot of people that say, let's fail fast. Yeah. What that's worth. Mm-hmm. So, so churches in, so churches both in Illinois and maybe elsewhere that there may be some real opportunities in the future to do more, but we'll be doing more with less. Right. And so a lot of the financial models churches are using aren't going to be sustainable. It doesn't I, I seem to me so. that some of our right. systems are sustainable. I think some of our systems, I think, look, I, I want to be a person of hope. Uh, I want to be a person of joy. I want to be a person of, uh, you know, I, I want to look honestly at the problems and then say, yeah, those are problems. We've got to figure out how to fix them. Let's mobilize to be, to care for people. And those can be times of, um, those can be times that are good. I mean, I, this is a little bit far afield, but. Uh, I remember an interview with, with Zelensky and they said, uh, wow, you're so brave. You know, you, you got an opportunity for transportation out of Ukraine when the war was coming. And you mm-hmm. said, I don't need, I don't need a ride. I need, you know, ammunition. Mm-hmm. And he said, you don't understand. He said, this life I'm living is a life of purpose and meaning. This is the best life I've had. I have things to do that matter. Most people don't. I think there may be real opportunities for Christians to care for their neighbors. To yeah. and 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 again, remember if if a society collapses, whatever that you know. I mean, people say, "Oh, the U.S. is going to collapse," or "Illinois is going to collapse." Okay, when a society collapses, the people don't die. Mm-hmm. It's just that the complicated systems mm-hmm. that we have break, mm-hmm. and then it, life has to get more simple. And we're not really prepared for simple. And I mean, if, if it's a catastrophic collapse and, you know, digital stuff goes away and all that, I mean, we're in, we're in deep weeds because, because most of us can't right. milk a cow or, you know, I, yeah. I guess you've got we chickens. we got chickens. you got we, chickens. Yeah, yeah. we're, we're going to be fine. You're, you're going to be fine for a while. Yeah. Okay. yeah. We're going to trap in rabbits. We're going to be okay. Yeah. Man, okay. I'm screwed. I I got guns. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you want to be sobered. There's a professor at Montreat College, uh, I can't think of his name, but he wrote a book called One Second 
uh, after one week, after one month, after after this, the it, supposedly there's this nuclear pulse. Yeah, and everything and it can wipe up. out the grid. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's a novel about what happens one second after one minute at or yeah, one one second one. I think it's called one second, and one of them's one minute or one week. And anyway, but there will be opportunities for the church to be the church and for people to love their neighbors. And when society collapses, a lot of people will look around and say. Okay, well, that didn't work. So whose life does work? Oh, look at Nick and Lexi. They love their kids. They mm-hmm. love each other. They're, they're reaching out to people. It could be a time of great spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, again, I, and I, I, I say to people a lot in sermons, I, I say, look, um, if you're in Christ, this ends well. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know between now and, and, and I don't know what the ne- my next 30 years look like, but I know that this ends well in Christ. And so I don't need to panic about what's going on. Could bad things happen? Yes, I don't want them to happen. I don't want people to suffer. I don't want the state of Illinois to face economic hardships. We're living, I mean, it's not just Illinois. It's, it's most governments are trying to overpromise and they're certainly under delivering and reality catches up. I mean, we've just got a lot of people embracing unreality and expecting government to make their bad choices work. And that's we're we're running. I think we're getting to the end of that run. Yeah. I wonder how, how far that can go. I, I, yeah, I guess I thought maybe we would hit it by now. It's kind of the, I've, I've called it the Peter Schiff syndrome. He, he's an economist who's like, look, you can't just keep printing money like this. America's going to go into inflationary cycles. It's going to become hyperinflation and blah, blah, blah. But I've also been listening to him for at least since 2008. Yeah. And I haven't, it hasn't happened. Right. Right. And so it's kind of like every minute we get closer to where it has to. Right, right, right. Things keep getting like exponentially worse, and you're kind of like, well, at at some point, this does have to happen. But the the problem is, I want to ride the market up as long as I can before that happens. Right. Right? So again, I'll say, Warren Buffett. Today, I saw the news. Warren Buffett is bullish on the U.S. I'm like, okay, he's a smart guy, a little bit smarter than I am when it comes to economics. He's optimistic, but I, I started reading. The the technological breakthroughs necessary for that would be there would have to be a number of smartphone level. Technological breakthroughs that increase our energy capacity. And in, in don't you think that AI, about, AI just like, is one of those? That's just, I mean, chat GPT yeah, and see, what's I happening don't know. in AI. I don't know what and how fast gains through AI can be can delivered be, into yeah. economic productivity. But yeah. I, I, I mean, I think like the science fiction part of my mind goes, oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it could be as disappointing as the fact that we thought we'd have flying cars in the 1960s. Right. Yeah. You just never know. The part of the issue right. is, is like technology is so amazing. But then you don't really know where the boundaries are. Like science is like they'll go so far and then they'll like hit some kind of like hard boundary. And you're like, yeah, you can't. Right. You can't get past that. Right. right. And there's a right. I, my I'm playing around with AI and and I'm shocked at what it can do. But I'm also shocked at what it can't do. Yeah. And that's one of the surprises that and they say things that we're surprised it can't do because they're so simple to us might be a an intelligence that we have that is so under under the radar that we don't even realize how amazing God's programming of us mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Well, the more the more human knowledge goes into this one is Mike. Frankly, so I'm gonna this this to be a personal moment. Okay. One of the biggest struggles that I've had is with um, 
with the belief in origins. Because there's on, there's one level on which a evolutionary production of life has a certain simple like plausibility to it. I go, you know, that's that's a theory that can I like it's got some problem moments, but you know, like things it works fine, right? And then there's part of me is kind of like, we have been doing computer programming for how flipping long, and we have not produced what the human mind can do. And that seems like a problem for like how we understand how human beings get here. And it's hard for me to sort it without a clear like vision of the past, like the, like the origin of the human person. It's really hard to figure out what the human person is, what they're doing, where they're going, what, like all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I see that with younger people that like, um, they don't have, they either have a utterly evolutionary picture and they don't know how to interpret that. Or they don't need to know what they don't know what they are, and it's it's really hard to help people because they don't know what. It's like what um, uh, who wrote um Rise and Fall the uh Carl Truman. Yeah, like Truman talks about the difference between a mimetic view of the universe and a poetic poetic, poetic view of the yeah. universe. Like mimetic that is um mimicking that we are mimicking creatures, and poetic mm-hmm. is like like a poet. You like you take the raw materials and you romanticize it into something as beautiful as you can create, right? Which for a human being is something like transhumanism. Well, and I just want to add to that. Over my lifetime, there's been a heavy push in the church of the of the connection or integration of faith and science in ways that I think don't even, they're completely contradictory, which makes mm-hmm. it even more confusing to be a young person. When you when you try to figure out, you're asked the origins question, yeah. and you're like, here's what I was taught in school, here's what the church says, and the church now is telling me that these two things can go together when they actually doesn't actually it seem like it just like feels like they're just lying to, know what to me we are or if they do yeah and then yeah, i'm like and that's below what all these conversations yeah. like every conversation i hear about romance or life it's right. all rooted in evolutionary psychology now and then you hear people like jordan peterson right. and like a lot of his logic is rooting the human person in what we would predict from evolutionary development and like yeah and then you get to things like ai and it's like okay how, like how, how do we like and so I'm a pastor I'm trying to help people make sense of the world and people right. are very confused and like frankly so am I yeah and I mean like I think I know some things but like I have less a lot less certainty than I did on a lot of things and but I don't even have clarity on some things which is necessary in my work you know yeah, that's interesting. Does, it, does it feel like it it, it la- the the core problem of what the psycholo- the evolutionary psychological stuff is that it lacks the depth that the the like religious the, the religious I think it goes like back, if God is the future to me that I'm going to get bored at some for, point for me just, it goes back to the issue of can you get an awe out of an is like if like if yeah right because like I, like that statement you, you quoted um, Tim Kelly and I'm assuming if this is like a paraphrase so we won't we won't fully attribute to him like high school dropouts those people are just lost they're gone yeah. like as a Christian, I'm like, well, they, I'm yeah. sorry, they, they can't be gone. They're made right. in God's image. They have this inherent human value that can't be turned away from. No, even if I think, even if I think I walked into their neighborhood, they might beat me up at night. You know, if they didn't know me, like though, those people are made in God's image. We can't, that's not an okay thing to right. think. Well, you're Whereas, they're gone economically. Right? I feel like from an evolutionary that's point of view, it's kind of like, well, not everybody's going to make the next big leap in human existence. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. You're going to have to have an IQ of 136 or higher. And if you don't, you're not going to make it. I'm sorry, but in a hundred years you won't exist. And I like, I'm just kind of like, I don't, I can't, I don't know how to argue against that without being a Christian. What do you, and what being do you like, even say? I'm sorry. These people are made in God's image. You can't, well, I that's think, not the future. So, so I, I'm, I'm looking for a handle to jump into this. I conversation, know. Yeah. But, this is very clear. I'll just say this. Uh, I do think we are seeing 
the 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 cracks in the halo effect. So I was for a while I found myself saying to people, look, um, you say you believe in freedom of speech. You say you believe in, you know, the value of of all human okay, life. So you to, say- cl- to clarify halo effect. Halo effect is when things things are going well. We attribute them going well to something that's intuitive to us without actually really knowing. The so functional I'm, I'm using it in a producing. different way. I'm using, I'm saying, uh, when I say cracks in the halo effect, cracks, cracks in the Judeo Christian goodwill that is out there. So, uh, you know, Nietzsche said when we're coming into the 20th century, he says, all these people say the 20th century is going to be wonderful and we're going to hold hands and share and sing Kumbaya. And he goes, they're crazy. It's going to be a bloodbath. It's going to be the rise of, you know, the Uber mansion. It's going to be a doggy dog world. And of course, you know, he's, he's right. He said, as soon as the, he used the word, as soon as the halo effect of, of Christianity goes away, we're going to see this ugliness. Meaning the like restraining romanticism. Just the value in human life, inherent value, and that humility oh, like, is good. So, but halo effect is like this—the the sacralization of something. Yeah, it takes yeah. like the thing and says, "No, this has like a value beyond its like it's, object." It's it's, it's some of the influence of Christianity. Okay. Like you should care, you should you should care for the poor, and you right. should be humble, and you and people all have value, okay. right? So, I'm I'm now in conversations where where for the first time I heard people say. What makes you think you have any right to speak at all? There's no freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. That's not a good thing. Democracy's not a good thing. You you should not have a right to vote. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh. <laughs> In that context, as you as an older white male. Well, it's it, it's generally I'm hearing that I'm reading that okay. being said across the, the spectrums. But yes, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, certainly uh, old white male. But it's just the idea that people would say freedom of speech is not a good thing. Democracy is not a good thing. Human value is not an inherently good thing. Now, most people will say that there is human value, but but if you push them on the inconsistencies of what they're saying, sometimes people will say, yeah, well, not all life does have value. Mm-hmm. And I found myself going, oh, I actually liked you better when you were inconsistent. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm getting my way, mm-hmm. but you're giving up the wrong thing you're saying yes okay you're right there should be a darwinian world and you're going to get eaten can i okay i want to ask a question that i that i think directly relates to this um that i was thinking about earlier when you did the q a lunch here at high point um and you can tell me if you don't want to get into this but the (laughs) the uh so I, i i have a problem with the idea that you can um that we should be encouraging people in the church to serve in the public school system. Okay. Because if the public school system is perpetuating a lot of these ideas, which I think it is the idea that people, some of the more Marxist uh, postmodernist philosophies and they're perpetuating that. And that which is directly and indirectly corrosive to the even capacity to hold a Christian world. Right. The Christian aesthetic, what what, what you've said in the past, Nick, Christian aesthetic, um, and, and I, and I hear this, I've heard this my whole life. Like, Oh, Christians, we have to be in the church so we can spread the gospel. Well, you can't cause they don't want you and they don't let you in the schools in the schools. Yeah. yeah. They don't let you. And that's a, that's an idea that's just not true. You can't go in there and sp- spread the gospel. 
what, how then, I guess, connecting this to service and to the church and our response to some of this stuff, I guess, how can we, what's the purpose of serving in something yep. that's actually helping perpetuate a problem that we seem to not be able to solve? Yeah. Okay. So, um, so I guess what I'd say, Andy, is, is, uh, I am, I am sympathetic to the argument that, um, that the schools, which are the, I think increasingly going to be the flashpoint in, in culture, uh, school board meetings, I mm-hmm. think are going to be where we see everything, you know, coming apart and, and issues of starting new schools or homeschools or all this stuff is right. definitely going to be, um, and, and I, you know, we pulled, uh, we had our kids in public schools again, our youngest is 28. So this is a, a different era, but we had, uh, we homeschooled my wife mostly homeschooled one of our uh, boys. We sort of looked and we moved to get into different schools at different times. Uh, and if I've worked to help try and get a charter school going, and now we've got a charter school at one of our campuses that's, we're not, we're not running, but it's mostly, it's got a lot of Christchurch influence in it. So I am sympathetic with homeschooling, classical school, classical Christian school. I'm sympathetic with lots of different models in the public schools in North Chicago. Most of this is being done through a, a group called North Chicago community partners, that is not a Christchurch ministry, but it was started by somebody that attends Christchurch, a uh, very gifted um, woman, leader, just remarkable, Harvard MBA, just, and she got this thing up and running. And it was providing uh, all kinds of help, help for teachers, uh, food, uh, medical uh, care for people, um, you know, we do haircuts, we would teach music classes and do a lot of stuff. So at what point do you say I can't play in that, that sandbox? Okay. I can see some people are going to say, I can't do this. Um, we're not there. I mean, I think providing food before school and food for kids going home on a Friday when they're not going to have food and, and, uh, you know, arranging those kinds of things. I think that's still, you know, a God honoring thing. And, um, but we're working the other systems as well. And I'm, I'm applaud the people that are doing that. And I hope, I hope we can find a way. I sort of, I realized that I sort of have, uh, crossed a line now that we've got a grandchild. I'm like, you know, been a public school guy for a long time. Uh, wow. I mean, my neighbor's a second grade teacher and she's like, you know, we, I don't know how much longer I can last and uh, goes to the church and she goes, we, you know, might have to pull our kids. Yeah. I, yeah. I've told some of the younger people who are in education come through the church. They're like, yeah, I think I want to be a teacher. Do you think, do you think this, the Christian school would hire me? And I, and I often say to them, I was like, you know, go to the public school because they're going to kick you out real quick. So just go and be yourself and make them face this. Huh. That like bright, smart, kind, caring Christian teachers are applying. You're hiring them. They're teaching for a year or two and they're wonderful people and you are running them out. Yeah. And I was like, get yourself fired. Like, and then we'll hire you, but, and cut your teeth as a teacher, you know, and do whatever, you know, but like, and understand what you came to the Christian school to really huh. leave. Know yeah. what it is. Right. Because yeah. as, like, as like, when they kick you out, we will hire you. We always have openings, but you'll make a little bit more money. You'll get, and then, and like be a Christian. And no, when they kick you out, we will take you. 
but like start there and be a witness when they martyr you, then we'll take you. Huh. That's, but is that, I don't, I don't think that's happening because I think there should be counter pressure. That's not yeah. happening. No people, but that's not happening. Okay. From my perspective here in Madison, I'm not going to speak most 23 broadly. year olds aren't capable of changing a system. You know, well, they don't even push back at it. I mean, that's, I know people here at high point who are working in the public school system who aren't pushing back. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't think that that advice, the paycheck looks too good. They get great benefits. The paycheck looks too good. I mean, our generation has been brought up in the with the idea of like money is everything. So when they get a told by the head pastors, a lot hey, of push teachers push back at career transition and make more money. Right, but I'm saying if they get told by a pastor, hey, push back at this and get fired. Like I don't, that, I don't. That's not happening. Yeah, I mean, yes, I I agree that this goes back to the Jordan Peterson principle of you should know how cross marketable you are. You might need to bone up on some skills and grow in your human capital. Um, but what's also true about Gen Z is um, a lot of them are not growing really fast in their human capital yeah, so that yeah, they can be yeah, paid yeah. more and, and get and like if you put some attention to that you can make sure that you can move at least laterally if not up right if you leave a position like that now i i think peterson is right that like learning how to start a business learning how to be more marketable learning how to be a more valuable employee it's all those all, sorts of things yeah. those will give you the strength and the power to look somebody in the face and say screw you and yeah. i i think that you have to be able to do that yeah i mean right. martyrdom is essentially that yeah. Like people, somebody says, shut up or I'm going to kill you. Right. And you say, I'm sorry, I cannot, I'm not going to comply with you. Right. Right. And if you can't do that in your job, if you can't, then you right. can't do it. Yeah. yeah. And I, 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 and I know people will say to me like, well, Nick, that's easy for you because if you, if you didn't do that, you'd be fired. Yeah. Like you, like you're literally on the opposite yeah. and that's, that is true. Yeah. Um, Except for in some ways when they start coming for Christians, you're going to be the first person that they come for too, because you're a pastor. I mean, that's yes. generally seems to be true. So there's yeah. more I have pressure. I'm surprised that we haven't had more of that so far. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Have you had that? Have you had people come like, li- like literally after you, like no. Christchurch is this terrible place and they're no, no. I mean, you, because look, you spun off these other organizations for people to get mad at, there's a, no. there's a blood brain barrier. I, I do have a, uh, there is a file that I give to my assistant and I said, if you know, it's my hate mail file. And it's, if, if somebody shoots me, you know, hand, hand the FBI, this, this (laughs) this might be the good place to start. Uh, so there is that. And, uh, but look, uh, when people, when people read my email, cause sometimes I, I, we do this class at not a class. We have something at Christ church, future seminary, future pastors. And, uh, you know, there's whatever, 10, 15 people there for lunch. And we talk about running a church. So we say, we're not going to talk about theology or church history or new Testament. We're, we're just going to talk about what's it like to run a church? What's, what's the brass tacks. And one of the times I just talk about criticism and I hand out my email scrubbed. There's no name, you know, nobody could identify who sent this to me. And I just hand it out, you know, I think it's 17 pages of, and let people read this. And the last time I did it, somebody started to cry. And they're like, that you should, and I'm like, wait, 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 what's, and they go, this is so unfair. You should not have to get this email. And I go, oh, dude, you are missing the point. Like this is coming to you in mm-hmm. a year. Like you think mm-hmm. I'm a reasonable person. People will like me. Mm-hmm. People will be fair. And I'm here to tell you, no, they're going to come out swinging. And in some places it's because some place, most of the time, I think it's mental illness and a pastor is a safe person to come after. And you just yeah. have to be well, the there's a, I mean, in any 2,000, any thousand people, there's going to be 20 or 30 people who are right. mentally ill in some way. Right, right, right. Absolutely. So what, what I say is 
that that's coming. That's always out there. <clears throat> My life has been remarkably safe, mm-hmm. and and yes, people get mad at me, and there's people that you know whatever threaten me, but it's it's nothing like when I read the Book of Acts, right? You know, yeah. it's nothing like the last two thousand years of church history. Yeah. Could or, it get or there? today in some other countries, or today in yeah. other countries? Absolutely. So yeah. I I want to say to people. If if the worst happens, it's still probably better for us than it was, than it is for for lots of people, and we have to keep that perspective. All right, I want. I have two more lines of questioning. Do you have something? Something you want? I to just want. I just want to wrap up with one specific question. So I don't know if you want me to go first or if you want to go first. If you wrap up, then I can't do the two lines of questioning. <laughs> Let me ask it. you two questions quickly. Um, one is when we were talking during the pandemic, and I said, "What are you doing at your church?" And you said, "I think one of the things my church needs more than anything is a calm." like just an unanxious presence, like somebody in their life has to be calm. Um, we live in a time now where virtue being hysterical mm. is a virtue, mm-hmm. which is strange to me. I mean, I'm only 45, but that seems really strange. Maybe it's cause I'm a man. Maybe it's cause like, I don't know what it is. English that bumper heritage. sticker. What's the bumper sticker? If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Yeah. That's our, but like I, I've no, like I went to a, a, to a city County meeting here in Madison the other night about, there was a, a woman who had been uh, appointed by the, the the county supervisor to health and human services, basically, and there had been some like kerfuffles, people calling each other names and saying things that were like not kind um, about this kind of back and forth. And the people, a number of people, basically said, "I'm not voting for this woman because I shouldn't have to put up with or deal with." And I was just like, "You're an elected official in Madison, like you don't think people are gonna like?" And they were, I mean, these were people that were like, they were like almost in tears, they were angry, they were like, and I was like, "Listen." Do you think like they they think politics isn't a contact sport? They think right. it's like curling, right. and I'm like, they're like they're like borderline hysterical. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm just like, grow up. Yeah. And you're like our county supervisors. Are you crazy? And I just could not believe it. And but like the more I look at this in like business, politics, all kinds of people, it's like being hysterical, like not like being anxious, being an anxious presence is leadership. And I just like, like how do you like, is there a way you're trying to teach people to not be that? So, so look, uh, I, I loved, uh, one of the things I I don't agree with, obviously a lot of his political opinions at all. But one of the things that I liked about Obama Mm -hmm. was the no drama Obama. Mm -hmm. Like part of what I'm looking for in a leader is when do they panic? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like how much, how much bad news can you handle before you panic? Because if I'm following you, I'm yeah. watching to see, are you telling me, oh, we got this. Okay. Going to have to change the plan, but we've got this. It's going to be okay. Or are you hysterical? Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, and I think especially, uh, you know, in the church on a, on a Sunday morning, I mean, it, Look, you can draw a bigger crowd if you're mad and you're mm-hmm. yelling and you're fearful and all of that. I think you can I think you can foment that. But but I don't think that's what people need. I think what mm-hmm. people need is somebody that says, "Look, God's bigger than this." I mean, it's Psalm mm-hmm. 92, Psalm 93, you know, the heavens are firmly established and then you get this the seas have risen up, O oh Lord. The seas have risen up. The pounding waves, the white water, it's chaos out there. And then it's uh, uh, mightier than the pounding of the waves is the Lord God Almighty. And so mm-hmm. I think it's not helpful to act like everything's fine. 
Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I don't trust the leader that says it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I think mm-hmm. you got to say, yeah, no, this is, this is unfortunate. This is bad. And these are bad trend lines and we're going to have to figure this out, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to panic about it. And I want to call you up and say, God is bigger than this. It ends well. You're okay. We'll get through this or God will do something else. So I, mm-hmm. I think we need leaders like that. And on the global stage, there's always people that are yelling and being hysterical, but they're not. They don't usually last that long. Well, I was going to say that it seems like a church who's a hysterical church. It's like they they're going to have to keep ramping it up to make sure people keep coming in the door right. and find a new issue. And, I've, and I've said that about guilt. And I go, look, I could make you feel guilty, and there's some upsides to me in the short run, but I got to make right. you feel more guilty every week. Yeah. And I could create some hysteria, but. I'm just too old. I'm too tired. I can't, I can't, I'm not going to play yeah. that game. Yeah. Yeah. And the weapons you give them, they're going to, that's what they're going to march against you with. You know, like if, like if you use that, they're going to turn around and make you feel guilty. If you fill them with anger, uh, they're yeah, going to turn yeah, that yeah. anger around on you. And Look, I just, it, it's just a losing proposition. Psalm 92. It may be Psalm 93, uh, but it's, it's in there. It's just, you know, mightier than the roaring of the seas. The Lord God is almighty. I think mm-hmm. we need leaders that say, mm-hmm. yeah, there's bad things. We're paying attention to it. We're doing what we can, but a non-anxious presence is very important. Okay, last question for me then. One of the things that we're seeing, one of the things going to happen in the church is the church is going to shed. Okay, this is my prediction, right? The church is going to shed a bunch of leaders. A bunch of pastors are going to leave the ministry. But the church is going to need leaders, mm-hmm. either vocational or bivocational leaders, but it's going to need leaders. And uh, one of the things you, we were talking about this the other night, how there's, uh, there was this ministry I listened to in a podcast who is helping people transition out of ministry who are pastors. You, most pastors, especially if they're at all successful, could leave the ministry in a couple of years, make more money than they're making now, with sometimes considerably more or double or more. Um, and you said the good thing about that is it keeps us in the ministry for vocation, not because we couldn't do something else. Right. Like, like, do you, what, what are we going to, like, what are we going to do in terms of like finding these leaders and inspiring people to go into ministry while still having a good theology of work by saying, look, you don't have to go into ministry to love Jesus a hundred percent. Your work is valuable. There's so many things that can be done in the world and you should do them. But some portion of you yeah. are going to have to make a commitment to lead the right. church and the flock of God as its shepherd. And we need you. And like, you're going to give something up economically. You're going to give yeah. stuff up. Yeah. How, like, uh, have you been like, how have you been thinking about that? Cause you're, you're not just in a like secular town or whatever, but you're actually pretty close to one of the major seminaries, a seminary that is downsized. Yep. Like a lot of the evangelical seminaries. It seems like there's fewer young men that are intentionally getting into ministry. And yet we're going to need even better men hmm. yep. and women to lead. Yeah. So I, I get, I do think that we're going to see more bivocational stuff and, and maybe there's technological solutions on some of this stuff. Uh, I don't know how that plays out. I mean, we're using, you know, we're a multi-site church and we use technology. I'm not, I'm not committed to it. It's, it, it was the right move, I think for a time and it may be ongoing, but um, you know, I mean, the Lord tends to raise up leaders uh, as he needs them. Uh, so I, I don't, I do I do find it occasionally hard to find people and I I talk with used to be I mean one of the things that's happened and it's it's sort of it, it means I can't compare apples to apples like I used to if I needed to hire somebody it used to be that I worked my network to find that person and 
you cultivated a network and you had a network and you nurtured the network over the years and you knew how to find people. And you watched what was out there and you talked with other churches and you figured it out. Now it's professionalized and there's, we've got search firms that are just go after pastors and search firms that you use for worship pastors and search firms that you use different ones for youth pastors. And you're like, okay. And it costs a lot more money. Yeah. And so when I was- Do you guys do that? Do you use those firms when you are trying to find major players? Now, most of the people that we have hired in the past- we hire off of staff. So they, they come up as volunteers and then they move into a ministry spot. And at some point we start to pay them. Mm -hmm. That's where we get most of our staff. So, uh, and that's one of the things that has hurt seminaries is that we're not reaching out to seminaries to hire people coming out of seminary. We're, Mm -hmm. we're trying to grow our own. Um, So I, I don't know. I remember 25 years ago calling a senior pastor of a church. It was about, mm, 2x where Christ Church was at the time. And I said, I need somebody. I'm thinking they're going to be at your church like this. this is what I, And he said, Mike, it's amazing what's not out there. Like, you know, you can't find that person. So, again, that was 25 years ago. And I don't know. I, I, I do think, Nick, that the church is going to be purified. The church is likely going to get smaller. I think it'll get healthier. I think it's going to be different. I think there's going to be more bivocational stuff. Uh, I think it's going to be very different in in different parts of the country, red states and blue states. I think are going to be having very different experiences mm-hmm. about the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I'm not. That's not on the list of things I'm worried about. <laughs> sure. Uh, okay, we can conclude with this. Uh, as long <laughs> as it's a high note. <laughs> It is. It's about unity. I, I, well, we'll see if it's a high note. It's about unity. We talked about at your at your Q and A. You had mentioned that your church, which is obviously similar to, to to High Point, and I think a lot of churches, um, especially in the Midwest, that there's a lot of people. You say there's a lot of red people. There's a lot of blue people. A lot of Republicans. A lot of Democrats. Um, and that you say your church is a purple church. That and not not in the sense that you guys are moderates, but that there's just there's people from both sides of the aisle who come to church there every single week and are part of the church and are members. And my question is, as as human beings in America continue to become more politicized and as politics continue to become more isolating and and more polarizing. uh, And everything is political now. And everything is political, right? Like your gender is political. I mean, like sex, gender, like your race, everything is a a political hot topic now. How, How do you... How do you navigate unity? I mean, this is a question that I've had, and I think I've asked several pastors, and I don't know if I've gotten a real solid answer, because if you make a comment about sexuality, you're now, I mean, let's say you, you make a conservative comment about sexuality, you're now a right-wing guy, when you're yep. just like, no, I'm just saying, what, you know what I mean? So how do you navigate those waters as things become more politicized and people become more politicized? Yeah, so just to say one thing, um, I would say we're a purple church, um, mostly because most of the people are sort of constitutionally purple. Mm-hmm. There are people that are red, there are people that are blue, so that's purple in the sense that you've got you know both ends of the spectrum, but you also have just a lot of people that say, you know, I'm I'm more, uh, yeah, I'm just not, yeah, I'm more purple. So this one I do worry about, 
And this is one I, I pray about and I work on. And I think it's going to depend a lot on leaders trying to hold things together. And I do think that, um, you know, that the, the angry and those that foment fear, uh, I think they they have an easier job than those that say, "Hey, here's what I know. We're supposed to get along. You're supposed to love your enemy, uh, even your enemy, and you're supposed to listen. And you're supposed to assume that you got blind spots. Now, that doesn't mean that you got to capitulate. That doesn't mean that the, you know that we can be namby pamby. It doesn't mean we can compromise on all these things. I don't think that. But we got to stand there. We got to listen. We got to love. We got to serve. Jesus somehow has, you know, the zealot and the tax collector, and he holds them together. And there's got to be a greater orientation around Jesus and his mission than around the, you know, the tax collecting or the or the usurping the Roman Empire. And I think that's just going to take a lot of ongoing work. And I do, I get exhausted by it. I get exhausted by, you know, by being criticized on from both the left and the right. Uh, I get exhausted by the crazy, sloppy thinking uh, that, that constitutes thinking and, you know, I go, okay. Um, I, 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 I don't know what to say, Andy, uh, other than I think it's, it's a big challenge. And I think to the extent that we can actually love people and keep moving forward and getting along, even sometimes across those boundaries. And as I said, in the Q and A, I go, I, I don't necessarily call out all the issues. <laughs> Maybe that's cowardice. But I, I tend to say, look, some of you are Cubs fans and some of you are White Sox fans. And loving Jesus has got to be bigger than that. Like, and, and it's Coke, Pepsi, and it's, you know, you just pick all these innocuous things. Although there's fewer and fewer innocuous things. I was just about to say, Bud Light and Bush Light. But that's a very right. different statement right, right now. <laughs> so calling people to, you know, that, to be that non-anxious presence, to love God and to relax and to trust Christ and to care for their neighbor, and to absorb some of the pain out of the system. And, and to be clear, you know, uh, don't always do it. And uh, I had an episode about a month ago, I had to call somebody back the next morning and say, okay, I was not the non-anxious presence that I'm supposed to be. Uh, and and some of what came out was was actually not even about that, but I just was, I was exhausted by six other things and mm -hmm. you know walk into the seventh one and you're like yeah i got nothing here like <laughs> this is this is i'm gonna vent and that's not helpful yeah 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 um, you have anything you want to say to that I, okay so i think i mean we're an hour 35 minutes into this, this. is joe rogan just started going. Just, right. for the record, just got going i've never listened to a joe rogan podcast people send me hey here's a seven hour joe rogan <laughs> podcast you gotta listen to i'm like he has some that are over three Five. Yeah, like, yeah, are you kidding me? Yeah, I know. Like, who has time to? I mean, look, man. Whatever. Yeah, I, I, I listen to like one out of ten. I, Rogan is, is one of the people I listen to, and Peterson too. And I listen like one out of ten. And I mean, I'm listening to him at, at 2.0 speed or more faster. So it only um, takes five hours. Yeah, instead of 10 I mean, hours. It take, I mean, but and, and I don't listen to it all at once. You know, yeah, that's. Yeah. But like, right. yeah, mowing lawn. Yeah. Time flies. Yeah. Fixing my boat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So to wrap up, uh, I mean, Mike Woodruff from Christchurch uh, in the Chicago area, if people want to know or hear more, I know you have a newsletter and you've done, and you're going through, uh, church history, the 100 most significant moments in church history. It's on YouTube. I've watched some of them. 
uh, a lot of young people, I think this could be beneficial to a lot of young, and everybody, but a lot of young people who de- might not know any of the history of the church. For me, as I listen through them, I'm like, oh, I have no idea. Some, yeah. some of these were even issues. So uh, what's your newsletter called? Yep. So the Friday update. Um, it, yes. The Friday update is the is the easiest place to sort of access what I do. You can get that at MikeWoodruff.org. Um, and on there, I link, I do a podcast called the press on podcast, which is interviews with authors and on topics. And then there's this hundred plus I'm at 82 right now. And it's the hundred most significant people, events, and ideas the last 3000 years. It's not specifically church history. It's a little bit more Western civ, but when I started it, it was church history. Okay. Uh, and then I, as I've gone through these and when I started, the first one was five minutes and I thought I was going to do all, you know, five minutes in church history for the hundred. And then I got to like number four and it was 30 minutes. And then number, you know, seven was like an hour. And, and I was like, you know what? I got to talk about these other things. I got to talk about the rise of capitalism. I got to talk about the influence of Sigmund Freud, sexual revolution. These are not church history events. So anyway, but all that stuff is unfolding uh, you get it at the mikewoodruff.org, but it's the Friday update in which I link. And I think on that website, I've got the open letter to pastors in Illinois and the books that I, you know, links to books I've written and stuff like that. Sure. Awesome. Cool. Well, we appreciate you coming on the podcast and having this conversation. Hopefully we can do it again in the future. Um, but yeah, thanks for, thanks okay. for doing this. Thanks guys. All right. We'll see y'all in the next one. Goodbye.